To love learning. To laugh. To love. To be loved. To see beauty. To understand. To bring grace. To the things that matter most. This is Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra. Welcome to my show. For every life stage, we have questions. Let's enhance our lives together as we explore the things that matter most. This episode is dedicated to Ginny's House Children's Advocacy Center, which provides free therapy to children who've been victims of any kind of abuse. Learn more at Ginny'sHouse.org. Today, we're going to talk about some new research that was just completed on a novel therapy for rehabilitating men in a maximum security prison. The two studies we'll talk about were done on 103 men in an unnamed maximum security prison in the Midwest of the United States. A friend of mine who knew I was working on this episode said to me, Alexandra, I'm going to ask a snarky question. Why should I care what happens to these men? They're in prison for a reason. I'll be interested later to see what our two guests say to that. But my first answer to this question is that caring about these men is the merciful thing to do. On this show, I like to bring in wisdom, not just from psychology, but from different moral traditions, poets, authors. And I've mentioned to listeners that I come from the Catholic tradition and Catholics have a lot of lists. I love the seven corporal works of mercy, which is a list based on both Old and New Testament ideas. And they include feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, clothing the naked, sheltering the homeless, visiting the sick, burying the dead. How many times have you heard people say, why should I go to that funeral? They're dead. Well, you go for mercy for the living, and you may also want to pray for them. And lastly, visiting the prisoners. So, In college, I found myself thinking about that last one, visiting the prisoners and wanting to do it, looking into it. There actually was a prison ministry as part of my campus, but feeling some fear about it, which held me back. And I ended up making a practice of visiting the homeless in Durham, North Carolina, which was one of the most rewarding experiences. So back to my friend's question, I'll also say, I'll also answer, if we seek to learn ways to rehabilitate these men, maybe we can find ways to prevent the things that put them in prison in the first place. Maybe we can decrease recidivism and maybe we can relieve suffering all around. I'm thankful for my two amazing guests today, for the research they've done in this area. And I'd like to welcome and introduce Dr. Robert Enright and Dr. Maria Gambaro. Dr. Robert Enright is the founder of the International Forgiveness Institute and has been featured in Time Magazine and ABC's 2020 as the pioneer of the scientific study of forgiveness. Dr. Enright has developed forgiveness education programs in at least 12 countries and has received many awards for his work for bringing peace and decreasing conflict across the world and is the author of Forgiveness Therapy, The Forgiving Life, and most recently, The Eight Keys to Forgiveness. This is the second time I've had Dr. Enright on the show. You can find him in a previous episode about forgiveness. Dr. Maria Gambaro is a licensed psychologist who's dedicated the last 12 years of her life to forgiveness counseling, research, and forgiveness assessment. She's one of the principal authors of the research and paper we're going to cover today, and I've been 
corresponding with Dr. Gimbera for what feels like years now about getting her on the show to talk about her prison study. And she's been telling me, not done yet. We're still working on it. So finally, we're here today to talk about the study and the results. Thank you both for being on the show today. It's our pleasure. It's our honor to be here with you, Alexandra. (laughs) Well, it's my delight. And your first study, because you did two studies, but your first study of 103 volunteer inmates helped me to feel a great sense of compassion for those that end up in a maximum security prison because you unearthed what they've been through before. I can tell you, Alexandra, that um, our, our first study, we posted a flyer and asked inmates in this maximum security prison if they would be interested in participating in a research study in which they would tell their story of past hurt. And we ended up getting, it was actually 108. We had to eliminate five of them because they couldn't go, they had already participated in a forgiveness study or group, so they couldn't continue in in this study. But to get 103, to me, was an outpouring. I did not expect us to get that many. So to me, it felt like this outpouring of these maximum security inmates wanting to tell the story of what happened to them. And they were telling it anonymously. So they were really just saying, I just want to tell somebody what happened to me. I just want someone to hear my story. That was it. That was pretty powerful, I thought. And to answer your friend's question, um, you answered it in a way that to a lot of people might feel very esoteric and they're not there yet you know, to offer mercy and do all these things that really require some deep spiritual soul searching. And what I would say to your friend and to other people who ask that question, if you're not there yet, if you're not to that point where offering mercy and compassion would be the reason to care about these guys, what I would say is they, over 90% of them, will release from this maximum security prison and from maximum security prisons all over the country. So just because they're locked up now, and maybe that gives people some comfort if they know about their crimes to know that they can't do that anymore, they will likely be back in your community. So if there's no other reason for you to care about them, um, care about that, that their time in prison is a time for them to rehabilitate so they don't release and do it again. Mm. And here's another thing I'd like to add. If you Google the forgotten people, you'll be surprised how many times that set of words, the forgotten people, are connected to those in prison. And when I visit the gentleman in prison, after Maria does her wonderful therapeutic work, they use that term and they say, once you're in here, you are forgotten. And what that basically means is there literally is a wall of separation between them and the rest of the people who are not behind that wall. Mm. And so let me just share with you one quick story to give you some sense of who is behind that wall. Mm. There's one gentleman who's been in maximum security prison for a long time now who was thrown out of his house by his mother before he was a teenager. He was 10 years old. And he literally didn't have a home. His bed at night was under cars for protection. His dining room table was garbage cans. And this is from 10 years old on up. Don't you think after a while, this guy, this child, would become totally embittered by life, and that wasn't his fault. Certainly, he now has free will as to the kind of behaviors in which to engage. But the rage within him was so great, and quite frankly, he didn't deserve any of that. And that's only a typical story of the hundred men we have. Wow, typical. 
yeah, 90% of them had serious stories to tell us. And what I found extraordinary is 46% of them, almost half, never told anyone about this prior abuse before we asked. And so when I put myself in their shoes and say to myself, could I even continue living, let alone live well, if this happened to me and I never shared this with anyone, that'd be a tough call. So when we're on this side of that wall looking in, we fail to see these kind of details some of them have been carrying wounds for decades and they're bleeding inside and no one sees mm. them as the forgotten people. That is a large number of them that had never told one person their story. Yes. I mean, if you think about that, how could they live well or live at all with that kind of pain inside and no one's helping them with that? Yes. Well, and I think what happens is when you talk about living, let's let's say we're talking about survival. So this person you described, that's the typical maximum security inmate. Um, they go into a survival mode at 10 years old. Some of them were even younger when they had similar experiences. Some of them described um, having been sexually molested at ages three and four. And so if you can imagine, and, and I'm sure you have listeners hearing this right now who have children those ages or have worked with children those ages, their brains are still developing. And so their brains are trying to figure out at the very, very most basic level, how am I going to survive minute to minute, day to day? And so they, they live in this constant fight or flight, fight or flight, fight or flight. And what ends up happening is in order to survive, they have to let go of some of those things you described in your introduction about mercy and compassion. Those are those are luxuries of people who don't have to worry about surviving. Mm. Um, these are guys who didn't know when they were going to eat next. Sometimes it would be days before they would eat again. They didn't know where they were going to sleep, and maybe they'd be lucky enough to find a car under which they could sleep, and so on. So... I think when you live in this constant fight or flight state, the way that you do survive is to become angry and fight back. And sometimes to get what you need, you just have to take it. And that's why we see things like armed robberies and drug dealing. And it, it was what was available to them to survive. You found incredible patterns between the type of trauma that they suffered and then the kind of crimes that they committed. Yes. I think what's happening there is these children's brains that are learning these ways of surviving that don't really make a lot of sense. I think no one is born a criminal they learn to do these things to survive, and yet at the same time, they know they're not right and they know there are better ways. And so what they do, I think, as they get older is they repeat the traumas that happen to them in some ways as a way to try to understand why they had to go through what they went through and other children didn't. So, for example, I think sexual abuse is the one that gets repeated. And most of us from the outside, like Bob talks about being on the outside of those walls, we would look at that and say, why would you do that? You, it happened to you. You should know above anybody why you don't repeat those things. And yet they do. And I think what they're doing is trying to understand it. Um, I have a story about one of our participants who um, was sexually molested by his brother. It started when he was about four, and it continued. And when he was about eight or nine, he then started doing these things to his sister, who was about four. Mm. And no one ever told him that this was wrong. He certainly didn't know that there were any legal aspects to it, that he could be arrested for doing that. He knew that he had to keep it a secret because his brother would say, don't tell anyone. Uh, but he didn't realize quite how wrong society would view this. And so what happened was his brother did this to him for years. He started doing it to his sister. 
And his sister told the mom. And the mom called the police, and the police came to get him. He was about 13 at that time. And they asked him if he did these things, and he said, well, yeah, because he didn't know that it was wrong. And they took him away, and that was that began his incarceration in the juvenile system. And he's he's an adult now. He's close to 40 and still incarcerated. So what he said was, at the time, he didn't understand that this was wrong. He He was just repeating what was done to him. And he was repeating it because he didn't understand it. And he thought maybe if he did it, he would learn why it happened to him. And the whole thing was a secret. Right. So there was no one to talk to to help him understand why it happened. And so it's almost like a subconscious compulsion to repeat it to try to understand it. Hmm. And you found through the study that excessive anger was the most powerful element determining the likelihood that they would have aggressive or violent behavior? Yes. That's typical, actually, Alexandra, not just for those who are incarcerated. Uh, My book you had mentioned with Dr. Fitzgibbon's Forgiveness Therapy, there's a whole host of research showing that when you've been treated unfairly by others, what happens next as an effect of that is resentment. And that resentment is not well studied in the mental health traditions, actually. And it's the resentment that then can lead to other mental health challenges like anxiety, depression, lack of trust, and a whole host of other kinds of themes. And even the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders might talk about anxiety or depression, and they don't really talk about a precursor to that, which is the resentment. So that's really a key for us, is going backwards in time, not just looking at the current mental health issues, if someone's anxious, what kind of issues uh, as effects do you have prior to that? Oftentimes it's resentment because of unjust treatment, So you see there's a spiraling, unjust treatment, then comes the resentment, then comes a whole host of things, including sometimes a life of crime. And if we only look at the behavior of the life of crime and don't trace it backwards, we don't then see this resentment that's developed because of the injustice, and therefore we can't cure the resentment because we're not looking at it. And if we can't cure the resentment, what's going to happen with the current mental health issues? They're going to continue. So there hasn't been a lot studied on resentment until recently. That's correct. And it really is because of the psychology of forgiveness, the forgiveness science that has brought that to the fore with regard to the mental health professions. It is like a missing element in the healing process in these psychiatric, psychological healing modes. And it simply hasn't been seen. And now that it has, Maria heroically has brought it in to the correctional context for great good. I think that this uncovering resentment and uncovering it early is really a key to a box that stays locked otherwise. And One of the things we see in, I would say, close to 100% of the maximum security inmates, when you look at their crimes and the details surrounding their crimes, they were almost always under the influence of some sort of a substance when they did whatever they did. And there's almost always a history of pretty significant substance abuse. And so I would say, along with what Bob just said about resentment, why all the substance abuse? I think what happens is this resentment becomes anxiety and depression. And we've already said these guys don't tell their stories. They don't talk to people. Mm. They don't tell anyone. So they're suffering silently and this resentment builds and it becomes anxiety and depression. And any of your listeners who have dealt with anxiety or depression will know what I mean when I say it's a life of torture. And so to they can't just live with that every day after day after day. They try to deal with it some way. And so they self-medicate with street drugs and with alcohol and 
and then um, it unleashes because they're they're not in their right mind. It unleashes that resentment and anger, and that's where you get the crime. And the inhibitions go down, right, with the substance. Right. Well, we could talk about how people actually learn to forgive and the process and what's involved there. Then we can go to some of the outcomes of what happened once Maria had them in forgiveness therapy for six months for two different groups. But I'm sure your listeners are going to be interested. Well, how do you do this? Yeah. No, because I think we could lead in with, okay, we have resentment. How do you get rid of it? How do you cure resentment? And if you've been treated unfairly by others, the cure is forgiveness therapy, actually. It is a cure for that. And, and that's what I think your listeners are going to need to hear. Yes, we definitely want to give them the practical how to do it uh, so they can apply it to their own lives, too. Can you define forgiveness? Yes, forgiveness actually does not center within the social sciences or within psychology. Its origin really is in philosophy and what we call the moral virtues from ancient Greece of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And all moral virtues are expressions of goodness toward others. Justice is the big one for Plato, for example. The justice is to be in right relations with others toward fairness. Forgiveness always is in the context of being treated unfairly by others, and your goodness is to respond to others who are not good to you with a goodness that it can include respect, kindness, generosity, or usually in family relations, if it can be restored, a sense of loving connection between and among people. And so the short answer of what forgiveness is, it's being good to those who are not good to you, which makes it automatically unpopular. Even though they may not deserve it. Yes. That's right. Even though they may not deserve it, you are having mercy on them. It is a corporal work of mercy. It's a spiritual work of mercy. Yes. And that makes it immediately controversial because people's attitudes these days are, if they're not good to me, they're going to get it. And this is making me weak. It's making me inappropriate. And it's holding me up to further abuse. But what forgiveness is not is this. You're not excusing what the other did. You are not condoning and say, well, it's perfectly okay. You're not forgetting because it might happen again. And you may or may not reconcile with the person who's hurting you. If someone keeps hitting you on the head with a frying pan, you can't forgive them, but you also ought to take a hold of that frying pan and say, stop it. And so forgiveness works together with justice, where you can have mercy on the other and be good to that other without condoning or excusing, forgetting, or necessarily reconciling. And so as you let forgiveness and justice grow up together, you do not put up with abuse. And that's a misunderstanding. And that's why people think it's weak and think people should not engage in forgiveness. But the issue is, if they do, the science shows paradoxically that as you are good to the others, you're the one who heals. That's the big paradox, is that forgiveness helps the one who is doing the forgiving. You may or may not even have to meet the person you're forgiving. They may be on the other side. They may be dead. But it you, you still need to forgive and it'll help you. In other words, if you don't forgive, you're carrying the resentment within your heart for the rest of your life. And it can happen that way. We've worked with people in hospice who are 80 years old and they were hurt 40 years ago and they still had the pain. Forgiveness can be a release of that pain, the release of the resentment, the release of hatred. It does open up the possibility of giving a gift to the other where they get it and realize their behavior is wrong, and we give them an opportunity to change, and we give the relationship an opportunity to become better again. So yes, it can be for the self, for the other, and for the relationship. 
But even if the person is deceased, you can be kind to someone who's died. How? Well, you can say a prayer for the person, or you can donate to charity in their name, or say a kind word about that person to the family, giving them a good name not because of what they've done, but in spite of it. So there's even a way to be good to those who aren't good to you, who aren't even on the planet anymore. Mm, yes. And that, that was a struggle for some of the participants in this study and in other forgiveness groups that I've done, um, that the person who hurt them isn't alive anymore. And so we do have to get past the question of how do I do this forgiveness thing when the person isn't even there for me to communicate with? Well, it doesn't have to be a reconciliation. It's something you decide in your heart. In fact, you could still be, you could still be bad to people who have died. You could leave a really awful reputation in the family by always putting them down and how awful great Uncle Fred was. Well, you could pull back from that and literally do no harm to Fred's reputation in forgiving him now. And now, of course, you're the one who benefits because you're not going to be reconciling with good old Fred in this earth right now. This is a fascinating conversation, yes, about uh, how we treat the dead. Thank you for that. Yes, absolutely. So what can be done about resentment for the prisoners or for ourselves? What do you do? Well, one thing we have discovered in our research laboratory at the University of Wisconsin in Madison is that when we take different populations who have suffered injustice from other people, and the people in our study are still resentful, if they go through a process of forgiveness and learn how to forgive, understanding what forgiveness is and is not, what happens is, for example, with incest survivors who had come to us with Suzanne Friedman as the intervener here, they were clinically depressed. She worked one-on-one -on -one with 12 courageous incest survivors, six in the experimental group first, six in the control group. And at the end of 54 weeks, one hour a week, over a year, all of the women chose to forgive the man who did this to them, and they ended up being non-depressed. Their anxiety went down. Right? You know who they ended up liking? Themselves. Hmm. We did a similar study in a residential drug rehabilitation facility. And 90% of drug rehab is outpatient, so we had the tough cases. And again, this was a group therapy, forgiveness, yes. choosing people who have had injustices and have resentment. They went from clinically depressed to non-depressed status. We have worked in a cardiac unit of a hospital. And again, we have chosen people who have had these kind of injustices against them and they're holding resentment in their heart, literally. And we found that once they forgave, there was more blood flow through the heart. And Dr. Douglas Russell, who was the physician overseeing this, said we help them in two ways, to overcome chest pains and the possibility of sudden death. So forgiveness literally, when people say yes to it, can improve major organs of the body even, as well as yeah, their psychological issue of holding, yes, of holding hatred in. And so there are a lot of studies, and they're in the book Forgiveness Therapy, which is really for the helping professions now. That one isn't just for the general public. But the research is documented well that when people learn to forgive, the resentments go away and the concomitant effects that tumble into a person from that are healed. I'd want to mention to listeners that I think a good book, if you're not in the profession, the mental health profession or medical profession, would be The Eight Keys to Forgiveness. Would you agree with that, Dr. Enright? I would. Yeah, I, when I started writing the book, I said, hey, wait a minute, there are more than eight keys to forgiveness, but it was a series out of Norton, eight keys to this or that. So I got it down to eight keys. Okay. 
And that's the one that Maria used in her program in maximum security prison. Each of the guys had a copy of that. And the reason I like that book um, for use in a, a therapeutic setting like that is it, it breaks it down into eight steps, which makes it simple. So it, it makes it simple in terms of um, journaling for the participants. It makes it simple in terms of homework assignments. In terms of discussion, we can say today's topic is key three or something. So it, it really organizes it into um, separate categories. Yes. And key one is know why forgiveness matters and what it is. And so it's basically starting with what is forgiveness and why should we care about that? So before they even continue in the program, they've already decided whether or not they want to. We start right away with, do you even want to do this? Because this is what it is. What are those steps? Would you mind sharing that with listeners? Okay, so key one is know why forgiveness matters and what it is. So that would be a discussion of um, what is forgiveness? Because many of them think, ah, you just you know, decide to forgive and then you forget and you move on. And that's really not what it is. Uh, key two is becoming forgivingly fit. So that is working on strengthening your commitment to this idea. And sometimes it means working through smaller exercises like forgiving things that are less significant than something like what we've already talked about with the history of abuse. Then key three really gets personal for them. It's identify the source of your pain and address your inner turmoil. And that's where they get to deal with the story that they told. And for some of them, many of them, they've never told anyone. So this is the time when they finally get to verbalize their pain and their story. Uh, key four is develop the mind of forgiveness. So that's really building the idea that and the commitment to, the, to forgiving. Uh, key five, I think, is a very important one. Uh, find meaning in what you've suffered. So they start to look at um, how this trauma that they've endured has actually made them stronger in many ways. And they look at the courage that they've developed and the strength and the skills that they may not have had had they not had this trauma. And I will say, having worked with this book even before doing this study and then through this study, key four and key five, we tend to spend more time on those because they really hit home. And I've heard some of the participants say, you know, I was doing just fine with key one and key two and I got to key three and it stirred up some stuff but I was okay and then key four and key five I, I had to throw the book down I couldn't stand it I threw it against the wall I was pacing in my cell I decided I wasn't going to do this this is the ones where they have to find meaning or maybe what good came out of it I think what happens is they start to for the first time face what they've been through and up until that point they have survived by um, putting it out of their minds, forgetting about it in a sense, blocking it. And so what we're doing here is we're uncovering something that they have blocked in order to survive. And so this, those keys do take quite a bit of supportive therapy and I usually warn them ahead of time, as we get into these chapters, you might find you're uncovering trauma that you have blocked in order to survive. So we do spend quite a bit of time on keys four and five. Let's talk about what happened to you, even though it's difficult. We're uncovering something you haven't told anyone that you've survived up to this point by ignoring. Now we're just going to rip it open and you're going to feel raw for a while. And so um, they do. We spend quite a bit of time on those keys. And then now we've stirred up anger and resentment. But we have to get it out there in order to fix it. So then we get to key six, which is when it's hard to forgive. And that chapter allows them to take a step back if they need to. And we do allow for a period of anger. So sometimes we say, well, okay, maybe you're not ready to forgive at this point. Uh, let's, let's get back to that anger. And let's talk about what happened to you and that it wasn't fair and that it did damage you. So... 
T6 is pretty intense, I think, in terms of working through why this is so difficult and why it takes so much courage. Do you take the approach of having them feel the anger and let it sit or notice where it is in their body? Or would you encourage them to go and exercise it off? We encourage them to talk about it. And what's interesting when you have a group format in a maximum security prison of these, as Bob said, forgotten people who've never told their stories, um, they suddenly feel like they it, it validates their pain and they validate each other's pain. And th- these are the points when there's actually more discussion amongst the participants in the group than what I can offer. So um, quite often someone will tell a story and get emotional. Sometimes we'll see grown men cry in these groups and they'll talk about something that happened and the other members of the group will listen intently, not interrupt, and at the end say, I'm sorry that happened to you. You didn't deserve that and it wasn't your fault. And to hear that from me would be powerful, but to hear it from another inmate is life-changing for these guys. We had a discussion one time about sexual abuse in one of these groups, and I asked the question to the group, why is it that sexual abuse above all other types of abuse seems to be the thing that is so damaging and produces so much shame that it's the last thing people will talk about. What What is it about that type of abuse that's different? And I expected there to be a lot of thought and sort of silence, people thinking about, mm, what's how are we going to answer that? And without another thought, the instant answer came from one of the members, and he said, because it makes you feel like nothing. And that's what Bob was talking about, this this forgotten group. So when they feel like nothing and then they have this opportunity in this group to talk about their pain and to feel it in a real way and express it to other inmates who say, wow, that shouldn't have happened to you. I'm sorry. You didn't deserve it and it wasn't your fault. That's Mm. very powerful. Yes, that is. And what about the decision phase? I'm curious about that. Do they have to verbalize that they are making a decision to forgive? I know that's one of the phases. They don't have to actually verbalize it. What they do through, I would say, through keys one through four is they struggle a lot with the idea that um, to them initially forgiveness is weakness. It means being soft, and you don't want to be weak or soft in a prison, especially a maximum security prison. And so we do have discussions about that. How do I deal with this idea that it makes me soft? And so I think that's where key six helps them quite a bit because it talks about the courage that it takes to do this. And it talks quite a bit about uh, not wanting to pass on the pain that was passed to them the sort of the cycle of repeating, like we talked about repeating what happened to them to try to understand it and the power position it puts them in of being the person who stops that cycle. That's a great way to look at it. They have the opportunity to stop possibly generations of pain that's inflicted one generation on the other. Right. And as we discuss their trauma, that starts to come out to the generations. I talked about the man whose brother molested him and then he molested his sister. And I asked, where do you think that started? And they will sometimes be able to come up with, well, I think what happened to my brother was that my uncle was doing that to him. And now come to think of it the way my mother behaved, I think somebody did it to her. I think it was my grandfather. And so they can start to see those generations of that, of how this has gotten passed from one to the next, and they suddenly realize they can be the one who stops it. I was intrigued with you talking about helping them to become forgivingly fit by practicing on smaller things to forgive before leading up to the bigger things. Can you give an example of that? 
Well, in the prison, you know, the first thing that happens to somebody who is incarcerated is their freedom is taken away. The day they go to prison, they're going to get what is considered humane. You know, they'll get food, shelter, clothing, medical care, dental care, but we take away their freedom. Um, departments of corrections, that's what they do. They, they say you have violated uh, some important rule of the society in which we live, and so we are going to put you someplace where you're not going to have the freedom to do a lot of the things that led to that behavior. So we take away their freedom. And these are people who already feel like nothing. And then they're grown men and they're treated like children because they don't have any freedom. So they're back to being children who are told by their parents when they can do things and what they can do and, and that sort of thing. So they tend to get angry about very little things that at least to us seem small. Um, you know, we had recreation at 2.30 and they didn't let us out until 2.34. So we just lost four minutes of recreation. That would be an example of the types of things they get really angry about. And they'll blame staff. Oh, the guy didn't let us out because he was too busy on the phone. And that sort of thing will really get them upset. Um, he moved me to a different cell in a different part of the building, and now I don't get good TV reception. You know, so those are the things we can start with. If they're not ready to deal with their real trauma, we can talk about looking at those kinds of things that happen to them on a daily basis that they get angry about. This took 24 weeks, the forgiveness therapy? Yes. Okay. And before you talk about the results can you share what is currently being done in prisons or in this prison? What sort of rehabilitative program existed or exists? There are programs uh, for anger management, and there are programs for substance abuse, and there are programs for changing cognition, changing the way they think and view situations. and. What I think Bob touched on when he talked about resentment and the, the precursors to all of this uh, anxiety and depression, I think what happens with these programs is they deal with behaviors and they're not dealing with the precursors. So it isn't enough to say to them, think about what you did to that person, you hurt them. Do you understand that you hurt them? They're not at that point, there, there's too much in terms of precursors and resentment for them to be ready for a lot of that sort of thing. They understand that their anger is a problem for them and that has led to some of these behaviors that got them incarcerated. They don't understand what to do about it and they don't understand where it came from. So I think the reason that those programs that are in place now don't have the same effectiveness as this forgiveness does because it, it isn't getting at, none of them are getting at the, the precursors. And in some ways, there's a lot of um, focus on the victim. And I think these uh, inmates tend to interpret that as, you know, you're shaming us. You're just shaming us again. We're already shamed. We've been shamed by the things that have happened to us. And now you just want to shame us some more by making us focus on the, the bad things we've done. What about what happened to us? So perhaps the current programs aren't deep enough to get to the root. Correct. Well-meaning as they are. Well-meaning as they are, and I think they do have a place and they are effective, but I think work needs to be done before these guys are ready for those programs to have the effects that they're meant to have. Key seven is learn to forgive yourself. Um, imagine being a maximum security inmate who has killed someone or um, raped someone, uh, molested a child. Some of the, the crimes that they are in a maximum security prison for are the most egregious you can imagine. And so we get to key seven and that is a real struggle to forgive themselves. They're much more willing at this point to forgive someone who hurt them than they are willing to forgive themselves. It's very, very difficult for them to offer this type of compassion, even if they get to the point of 
being able to feel that for someone who hurt them, it is much more difficult for them to offer that compassion to themselves. So getting back to your friend's question, why should I care? Just know that these guys are suffering a great deal internally for the things they've done. So let's talk about the results of your study. Okay, there were results of both the study one, which is how many of these men have difficulties and challenges in their life prior to committing this crime, and about 90% of them had quite serious issues. And then what we did is we chose men very carefully, 12 randomly assigned to the forgiveness condition and 12 to the typical rehabilitation program in the prison. And all of them had serious injustices against them. They were unforgiving and they had psychological compromise by validated instruments of anger, anxiety, and depression. And once Maria met with them as a group, 12, we ended up with nine in each group because some dropped out. As Maria had already talked, sometimes it's just too difficult for some. And that's typical for any group in maximum security prison. We waited the six months, a little longer, when there's lockdowns. And then we regave the instruments. And we gave instruments of forgiveness, the degree to which they are offering goodness to those who weren't good to them, uh, anger, anxiety, depression, and empathy. And empathy is very difficult to change, you see, when someone's in maximum security prison, because how can you have mass murder of 30 people and have empathy in your heart? And so they came to us with low empathy, too. And when we then compared after the first six months of treatment, the experimental group that had forgiveness therapy went down statistically significantly compared to the control group that did have traditional rehab in anger, anxiety, and depression. And they went from clinical levels to around normal, close to normal or normal on these three critical areas of mental health. They went up in forgiving those who've hurt them very badly, like the gentleman who slept under cars and Mm -hmm. ate out of garbage cans. He forgave his mother, right? And their empathy went up. There there was not much change at all. It was flat. The The movement was flat for the control group. They didn't go up or down on any of them. Then Maria instituted forgiveness therapy with the second group, and the control group became the experimental group, and then they went through forgiveness therapy for the six months. The second group is the one that already went through the traditional prison rehab. That's right, and they went through traditional correctional rehab, and they did not improve in mental health. So then they started forgiveness therapy, and they now had the six months with Maria Gambaro, one person, her, as the intervener, starting with about 10, and they ended up with nine, okay, just the original group. And they, too, when we compared them to themselves when they didn't have forgiveness therapy, after forgiveness therapy, they, too, forgave, showed an increase in empathy and went down statistically significantly in anger, anxiety, and depression to normal levels. And so what we got is two looks at forgiveness therapy, the first group, and then eventually the second group, and they both showed similar results. They replicated one another. Yes. And then they asked to meet with me, so I met with the men afterwards, and they said to me, This is the only thing that's ever worked for me because it actually, first of all, validates my pain. I get to finally see why I've been so angry for so long, and it's helping me actually get on with my life Hmm. as opposed to simply looking at my behavior that I'm so angry about anyway, I don't have much interest in changing it, but now I do. 
because I see what's behind all of it. They have grown an empathy or a tenderness toward people in general. It's not just an empathy toward the one who hurt them, keep in mind. This is general empathy toward human beings, other human beings in general. Amazing that you can increase empathy and that it's generalizable. That's right. And so that's, in fact, what happened. Five of the men ended up going to medium security prison afterwards. In other words, their behavior was such that they were seen as less of a threat where they didn't have needed as much intense security. And so I think we're on to something here because when we look at the published literature in maximum security prison, this is a scientific basis for what Maria did. There never has been a study of mental health change for men in maximum security prison with a true experimental design as strong as this. Never has happened before. Yeah, I could not believe the the, uh, paucity of studies in this area. I think you only found six of them and maybe one of them was a decent design. Well, and I think that gets back to your friend's question again. Why should... Why should we care about these guys? Um, and I think that's the general way of thinking in research and psychology. When you're going to do a study of something like empathy or you want to reduce anxiety, these are the last guys you think of. They're what Bob said. They're the forgotten. They're behind the walls, and, and people stop thinking about them. But I think it's important for all of us to think about them because they are going to be members of our society again, many of them, most of them. Good point. Yeah, see, another thing that's important is we're not say, saying that forgiveness therapy ought to supplant all the kinds of good programs that exist in correctional facilities, whether it's medium or maximum. We're saying it should be part of mm-hmm. good and full rehabilitation. So in other words, if we could settle on getting settled hearts first, getting rid of the resentment and the bitterness and the hatred, then the people will be more focused on traditional rehab. They can hear it. Yes, they can. And they, they're understood and they're getting rid of something the social sciences and the mental health professions have missed. This idea of resentment first has to be dealt with. Then we can go on to our current Mm. feelings and our attitudes and our emotions and our behavior. But unless we get rid of that first, why should they cooperate if they're fuming? So we're saying let's let forgiveness therapy come alongside what already exists. But do forgiveness therapy first. Mm-hmm. Do it first. Makes sense. In other words, if you if you want someone to have surgery, but they have a weak immune system, how about if we strengthen the immune system first and then have surgery? It's that kind of thing. Yes, it makes a lot of sense. I have a logistical question. When we talk about these maximum security prisons or medium security, are they managed federally or by each state? Well, they're both, I would say. I mean, depending on the type of crime and how it's prosecuted, uh, maximum security inmates can either be in the federal system or the state system. But I think, as you mentioned in the very beginning, this is an unnamed prison in an unnamed place in the United States. Right. And I think it's important to emphasize the anonymity because it doesn't matter. These are maximum security inmates. It doesn't matter if they're in a state prison or a federal prison or what state they're in or even what part of the world they're in. I think they're all suffering the same way. I agree. The learning can be applied to all of them. The reason I asked the question is I was wondering Maybe it's the public policy background that I had from my undergrad, but who would make the decisions about what sorts of therapeutic programs are brought in to these prisons? I think generally speaking, for a program to be brought in, it has to be what they call evidence-based. So there has to be some science behind it showing that it's been tested and it's been proven to be effective. 
where I think this becomes important if you're in the the prison system, let's say you're in the administration part of any prison system, whether it's state or federal, we have to look at what sorts of things do administrators deal with that are critical and um, important to them. And, you know, when you think about things like suicides in prison, uh, self-harm in prison, can we reduce those things? I've read just a, a brief reference that I'm gonna I'm gonna read to you right now about suicide in general. It came from the suicide literature, and this comes from Shapiro, 1992. It says trauma, especially sexual trauma, is a known risk factor for both suicide attempts and completed suicide. Now remember, these are guys who may have had that kind of trauma and haven't told anyone. According to Shapiro, 1992, one of the first researchers to look at suicidality and the sequelae of childhood victimization, sexual victimization creates an overwhelming sense of powerlessness, worthlessness, and a felt inability to change or control one's environment. It creates self-loathing. It facilitates internalized feelings of shame, not the guilt of feeling what one has done is bad, but a more pervasive sense of being bad. It creates self-blame. So if you think about it, we take these guys who already feel powerless and worthless and unable to change their environment, and we put them in prison where that's exactly what a prison is. They take away their freedom. So now they're powerless. They see themselves as worthless, which they did anyway, and now we're putting them in prison where they're going to feel that even more. Self-loathing, I mentioned that um, learning to forgive themselves was the most difficult of all the eight keys. And this shame that not only do they do something bad, but they are bad. And so when we look at what this forgiveness does, one of the things we haven't mentioned is there was an increase in hope and self-esteem. So if we can do that, then I would ask the question, so we're talking about why would the prison system be interested in this? Ask the question, can this reduce suicides and can this reduce self-harm? And even more importantly, in the very end, when we know we have to release them, can this reduce recidivism? That's right. I would actually like to just add one more thing, whether this gets on the program or not. Let's just see if it's useful. Okay. I want to talk about why I think it's a tragedy that forgiveness therapy is not more prevalent, not just in correctional facilities, but as a normal part of living, including education of children who are growing up. Here's another example from a different maximum security prison okay. uh, with whom I had interacted and I met with the men, and many of them were what we call mass murderers. And the very first day when they were starting forgiveness therapy, the two therapists said, tell us your story of deep injustice against you. And one man who had killed all of his family members, and he had been there for about 20 years, started crying. And the therapists were taken aback by that because he was a big, tough guy who killed everybody, and he had this sense of toughness in the correctional facility. They said, why are you crying? And he said, nobody's ever asked me this before. And they said, what's your story? Wow. He said, when I was a, yes. And he said, when I was a child, my discipline by my father was this. Whenever I misbehaved, he would have me crawl on my hands and knees on the gravel driveway, which was a long driveway, to pick up the mail pick it up out of the mailbox, and then crawl back on my hands and knees and hand him the mail. And when I got back, I would be cut and humiliated, and my father had me do this over and over and over again. The rage built up in me until I was old enough to pick up my father's hunting rifle. He was age 16, and he said I shot and killed the whole family. Oof. Had that young man had forgiveness training or forgiveness education, 
like Maria is giving to adults now in a correctional facility, but in a, now in an educational institution. And he had the chance to get rid of that rage little by little in the quiet of a classroom setting. And he forgave his father and even stood up for justice. The whole family would be alive today. And I also wonder about the father. What made the father abuse his son over and over like that? There had to have been something in his heart, really an unhealed heart to do that. And if he were able to forgive those who abused him, he never would have abused his son. And Mm. everyone would be alive today. And this gentleman would not be in maximum security prison for the rest of his life. And so our missing the opportunity for planting forgiveness in our institutions, including early in educational institutions, is tragic because so many of these crimes of fury could be totally eliminated if we would put forgiveness more on the forefront of society. Well, it certainly makes sense to prevent and or at least target at-risk populations with forgiveness therapy or forgiveness education. And uh, people can find more about this through the website. Can you tell them the website? Yes, we have a not-for-profit organization that we've been running since 1994, and it's called the International Forgiveness Institute. And the web address is internationalforgiveness.com internationalforgiveness.com. We have a lot of resources there, including resources for children and parents and teachers for children from age four or five all the way up to age 18, and various books and self-help material on forgiveness can be found there. Yeah, wonderful resources. Well, I think one thing that I found striking in one of my groups was I had a one member who initially was very resistant and he was in the control group and he went through the traditional program rehabilitation program and he he had this attitude about it like you know I I've been through every program I've been incarcerated for 30 years I I know all this stuff I've done it before it doesn't do me any good why should I do this and of course as part of a research study they always had the option of dropping out but he never did And I kept asking him, well, why do you keep coming to this group if you have that attitude? And he couldn't really answer. And at one point, then he finally said, okay, I am going to drop out. And then he came to the group the next week. And he said, I'm here because I committed myself to this. I said I would complete it, so I'm going to complete it. He was very resistant because he belonged to a particular religious group that is very fundamentalist, and he said he takes his direction for life from Scripture. And he reads Scripture all the time, and that's, why does he need any more than that? And so he believed he had already forgiven. It was his mother who mistreated him, and but he kept coming to group. And then he, the control group ended, and he began the forgiveness program, and he still had that attitude. And about halfway through, he started to become this person in the group that would really confront some of the other members who were struggling with things and not not wanting to forgive and getting caught up in their anger. How was he confronting them? Um, he was becoming kind of the person who would say, you need to look at yourself, look at how angry you are, how is that anger serving you now? Isn't that what got you in trouble in the first place? You need to realize that You know, you're always angry about things that really aren't the source of your pain, that type of thing. Okay. And so in the end, he said on the very last day, he said, I've been incarcerated seven times. And now on my seventh incarceration, I have enough time that it will effectively be a life sentence. I won't ever get out of prison. If this had been around during my first incarceration, I wouldn't be here now. So I thought that was pretty powerful testimony Yeah, uh, that, you know, he thought if he had had this on his first incarceration, he would not have continued to commit crimes each time he was released. Yeah, that's a powerful story. Thank you. 
Well, Alexandra, but, but just one more thing I'd like to add. We didn't talk about key eight. And key eight in the eight keys is develop the heart of forgiveness. And that's exactly what you just talked about, which is um, looking at it in a broader sense. Once you've done keys one through seven, which are all very, very difficult, can you now, in key eight, live this way in every situation for the rest of your life? That would make sense. I mean, that's what we would strive for. Not just for that one situation, right? But for everything. And and that's healthier for us to live like that. Yeah. It's better for society. Correct. I want to say thank you to both of you, Dr. Enright and Dr. Gambaro. Thank you for sharing this with us. And may we all learn to live the mercy that we've talked about today through learning about forgiveness, through forgiving others through comforting the afflicted. Thank you. Thank you for having us on. Thank you very much, Alexandra. Thank you for giving us the opportunity. If you enjoyed this episode of Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra, show your support by leaving an awesome rating on iTunes. If you'd like to share your comments or ideas about this podcast, follow us on Facebook under Psychology America. Lastly, Dr. Alexandra has written an inspiring children's book entitled There's Always Hope, a story about overcoming, which is beautifully illustrated by Brianna Giasulo. There's Always Hope, a story about overcoming, teaches children about finding joy and gratitude, even when things don't go exactly as planned, and can be found at psychologyamerica.com or amazon.com.